Philippi was an outpost in the Roman Empire in the East. Patriotism and nationalism were its hallmarks. Paul writes to the church there to remind them of their call to something higher, a power greater than any nation or military. Jesus is the one true Lord, the only one worthy of anyone's devotion. But Jesus is not one to lord his power over us. Jesus is the God who gave up everything to serve out of love. And we as followers are called to follow his example. This is a series about following the ways of Jesus. And in the midst of anything that comes against us, know that joy and peace because Jesus, the king of the universe, has come so close as to live within us. Um, so we are continuing uh, with, as we did uh, on the weekend with our series in uh, Philippians, and we have made it to chapter three. So Cody's going to read uh, chapter three. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Thank you, Cody. So uh, this is a sermon about uh, re-evaluation. Do you need to re-evaluate Easy for me to say. Do you need to reevaluate some of your values? Because reevaluation of values is something people find themselves uh, doing from time to time, sometimes uh, without choice. Often, if something unexpected or sudden or dramatic happens, uh, a reevaluation of what you've invested your life in is sort of forced upon you. For example, the Apostle Paul. On his road to Damascus, he has this experience where he meets the risen Jesus, and it's so powerful that his whole life is turned upside down in an instant. But not all re-evaluations of values have to be precipitated by something dramatic or sudden or unexpected. Sometimes a light bulb just turns on. Or after a period of time, what may have started out as a sort of nagging, slight sense of dissatisfaction grows and grows until we realize that actually, oh, wait a second, those things that we've been invested in, they aren't actually that valuable after all. Uh, when I was at university, for reasons, this is a very trite example, but for reasons I still don't understand, I became obsessed with buying a white linen suit. 
I was 21. And I thought, this is what I really needed. I don't know why. I still don't know why. I think it must have been a dream. Uh, but I did. And I would go to the tailor in Cambridge, and I would try it on every week, trying it on. And then I saved money for it. And then I got it. It was beautiful, double-lined, uh, working buttons on the cuffs. It was a real piece of art, beautifully tailored. I wore it once. And then I realized, I'm an idiot. Because not everything that we value is actually that valuable. For Paul, the supreme value, which for all Christians is actually the only true value, is Jesus Christ, obviously. Every other thing that people give value to is in the light of knowing Jesus, verse 8, garbage. A word that actually uh, really means poop. We'll come back to poop in a minute. But first... Let's consider the alternatives of what we could value. Paul calls all the alternatives the values of the flesh. Now, flesh does not mean material. It doesn't mean bodily. It's not related to the body at all for Paul. In Christian thinking, our bodies are actually wonderful things, wonderful godly things. Rather, flesh in the New Testament always only ever simply means this, that which is contrary or in opposition to the spirit of the living God. And so Paul calls us as Christians to, in verse 3, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence means don't base your life in, do not value things of the flesh, have no time, says Paul, for values that are contrary or in opposition to the Spirit of God. And first on his list of fleshly values are the values of empty religiosity. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. This is diplomatic Paul at his most diplomatic, or rather it's aggressive Paul at his most aggressive and graphic. Now, the word dogs he uses is used ironically. In Paul's day, the most uh, religiously dogmatic and judgmental of uh, Jewish people described all Gentiles as dogs. This wasn't what all Jews did, but the most dogmatic did. These sort of self-righteous types viewed everyone outside ethnic Jerusalem as second-class beings. Less than human, in fact. Dogs, in fact. And Paul turns this all around and calls those who would call other people dogs, dogs themselves. Now, it's very important um, to see that Paul is not being anti-Semitic here. He is Jewish, and he loves his people. In fact, at the end of, his, of one of his other letters, the letter to the Colossians, he is listing all the people who have uh, looked after him and comforted him while he's been in prison. And about two of these people, he says, these are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. It's these two Jewish Christians he is particularly supported by. Because sometimes, and I'm sure that we can all relate, we just need our own people with us, don't we? The people who get it. The people who share our heritage and who share our upbringing and just understand things. Sometimes I just need to talk to a British person. I just do. <laughs> Unfortunately, often it's Adam. For Paul, those people are his fellow Jews, his fellow Christian Jews, because Paul loves his people, and there is no anti-Semitic bone in his body. 
So Paul is not being anti-Semitic. He is, though, being anti-self-righteous. He is being anti-empty religiosity. The people he is calling dogs, and worse, evildoers and mutilators of the flesh, are a sect within Judaism uh, who have decided that they are going to infiltrate themselves into Christianity, uh, commonly known as Judaizers. Rather than correctly seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of Judaism, they think Judaism is the fulfillment of Christianity. And so they are insisting that these former pagans who are now following Jesus, in order to fully and truly be God's people, they must become fully Jewish, fully adherent to all the laws of Moses, including being circumcised. And this is why Paul calls the mutilators of the flesh, flesh here for once and once only, being used to actually mean flesh, a particularly sensitive piece of flesh. And Paul says, watch out. Watch out. Why? Because these values aren't just empty, they are destructive. Now, I very much doubt that any of us have or will ever be influenced by Judaizers as Paul describes them here. There aren't, as far as I know, a lot of people hanging around bread pushing a circumcision agenda. Although if there are, please introduce them to me. I'd like to have a word. But whilst there may not be identical parallels for us today, there are, of course, though, plenty of similar ways in which empty religiosity creeps in and influences us away from the supreme value of Jesus. Jesus, of course, always reserves his harshest critique for the religious. In Matthew 15, during an argument about ceremonial washing with the Pharisees, Jesus says this, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching are merely human rules. And then his disciples are a little bit, this is quite awkward, you're being a bit aggressive. They go up to Jesus and say, you do know that the Pharisees got really offended by that, don't you? And Jesus says, leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Because for Jesus and for Paul following him, the importance of exposing the truth about empty religion is so high that if in doing so he offends a few people here and there, then so be it. This is too, wor too important, too serious to be worried about a little bit of offense. Because while some religiosity, sorry, but because whilst to some religiosity, and by that I mean religious performance, doing things like we always did them. But we always used to do them like that. When uh, we were in uh, London, we reordered this big church that was sort of dying. It had three people left in it. It was huge. Uh, the building was huge, three people. And uh, we, we moved into there, and we managed to bring a whole load of people. And, and the, the three people, two of them were so excited that actually there was life in the church again. But one was very annoyed because his pew had gone. To some, religiosity may look like it has value. 
following the rules with our, with our mouths and our hands and our minds, but not with our hearts. For Jesus, it's not just valueless, it's destructive. Religiosity is the value of the blind, and the blind lead the blind into a pit. So if Jesus and Paul take empty religiosity very seriously, can I ask us to do so too? I think there's a tendency in every church, this church included, to just drift. To drift into this sort of rote, repetitious, same old, same old, where our hearts aren't really ever engaged at all. It's very impossible simply to just sing, and sing the songs. We know the songs. They come to our heads because we've sung them enough time and we're just singing the songs, but our hearts aren't involved at all. Can I ask you, has it crept in? Is it creeping in? Are you just going through the motions? Um, as many of you will, will know, I wasn't uh, a Christian in my late teens, early 20s. I was brought up in a Christian household, and uh, whilst in general my overall experience was kind of uh, negative, it, was, it wasn't all good, wasn't all bad. Um, but after a while, I just had this light bulb moment. I have been paying lip service to this whole thing. I've been trying to believe, but I don't. I've been trying to do the worship thing, but I don't care. I've been trying to do the, be a good Christian. I've been trying to read the Bible. I don't, I don't care. I don't care about it at all. And I was like, oh, wait a second. I don't have to do this anymore. It was wonderfully freeing. The problem was I swapped one empty, valueless set of values for another. I then just decided to concentrate solely on what culture said I should value. And Paul speaks of actually something quite similar. Whilst Paul's cultural background is obviously Jewish and religious, the values he speaks about, which he says he counts as nothing, are actually very similar to those which our culture tells us to value at the highest. In verse 4 and 6, Paul is saying... Let me tell you about what I used to value. What I used to value is basing my life in self-reliance, success, and independence. And it got me nowhere, says Paul. You want to talk about confidence in the flesh? I had more reason to be confident in my flesh than any of you, good old Paul. I had every reason not to need anything. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul is talking about the problem of handling success and dealing with all the good things that life has to offer. And he wants to tell us about these things that he's not speaking about them as someone who has not had success. He is not simply speaking from a place of sour grapes. So many attacks on wealth and on success and on intellectuals come from those who have never been wealthy or never succeeded or have never been at the top or who have never been very good students. And I do suspect that many of the attacks are from below and they spring out of covetousness or envy or jealousy. Let's not do that. But Paul's not doing that. He's saying, I want you to know that when I am talking about the dangers of success, I am not talking about it from the point of being a wannabe. 
I've had it all. He had the right heritage, the tribe of Benjamin. He's from the right family, the best family. He is a Nepo baby. He has the right parents. But not just that right, the right parents, he also has a pathway to success. He was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning his parents did everything right for him. They did not miss a trick to get him correctly prepared. And in regards to the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, all good young Jewish boys were to learn under a rabbi, and his parents, have, uh, who probably were Pharisees themselves, have gone, we're going to give him the best. He's going to become a Pharisee. So he's got the right family, and he's got the right schooling, and he's got the right heritage. Everything to set him up for success. But he did not rest on just that. He wasn't like some lazy rich boy for whom everything just falls into his lap. He has zeal, verse 6. So much zeal, in fact, that he'd persecute the church. As a culture, we love zeal. We value it so highly. Seeing someone with such resolute determination that they won't let anyone or anything get in the way of them fulfilling their dreams. We love it. We think that's great. He's just done whatever he needs to. She just did whatever it took to get there. What a zealous, determined person. Paul wasn't lazy. He was zealous. And as for righteousness based on the law, he was faultless. He was top of his class, straight A's, Harvard scholar, valedictorian. He was the one giving the address to everyone else saying, I am better than you and I've proved it. The best heritage, the best family, the best schooling, the best upbringing, I've done the best. But now, however many years later, Paul is saying, but I count it all as nothing. What I valued, what the world values, it's actually all just empty. I want to suggest that we try and listen deeply to this for a second. The truth is, there is not enough time for all of us to learn from all our mistakes. Life is just too short. We need to learn from other peoples who have gone before us. You do not need to have an affair to find out that it doesn't actually lead to all the feeling that you're missing out being met. Let other people who've had them tell you that. Matthew Perry, um, as you may know, Chandler from Friends, the best friend, uh, sadly died yesterday after a lifetime battling with addiction and particularly the pressures of megastardom. And he, in line with the words of a million other unhappy megastars, said, you have to get famous to know that it's not the answer. But nobody who is not famous will ever truly believe that. And yet, how many of us think, yeah, but I'm a bit different. I'd be able to do it. it I, and I actually need it, and I want it. And God needs to give it to me. And the money, and the fame. Let other people make the mistakes so you don't have to. Believe what Paul is actually saying here. He actually knows. He knows that the world, what the world holds dear is nothing. It's garbage compared to knowing Jesus. 
And listen, listen to what he's saying. He's not just saying, Jesus is the best. So make sure you have a lot more Jesus to balance out anything else you have, like success or money or beauty or popularity. He's saying it doesn't even work like that. He's saying if you value those things, if you base your life in those things, you can forget about Jesus. There won't be any room for him whatsoever. And so I wonder whether this actually will make some sense for some of us particularly if we feel a little conflicted in our faith, particularly if we feel a little dissatisfied in our faith, particularly if now and again it feels like you've got one foot in one boat and one foot in the other boat, and one boat is drifting off that way and the other one is drifting off that way. If it actually makes sense to go, this isn't all it's cracked up to be. Because instead what Paul says is, whatever you value that is not Jesus you need to start treating those things as actual losses. You need to ditch them as values. Because you cannot have these things, you cannot value these things and value Jesus. Because Jesus is all and everything. Now, Paul is not being hyperbolic here. He isn't overemphasizing for effect. He's just being logical. As Jesus had already put it starkly, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Now, of course, he is not saying, and the Bible never says that to be a Christian you have to be poor, you have to be a failure, you have to be ugly, you have to be unpopular. Wealth and success and beauty and popularity are in and of themselves not ungodly things. But what they do is they can dull us to our need for something much, 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 much better. If towards those things that our hearts are directed, if that is where our values lie, just as if our values are in the emptiness of rote religion, of just doing the right thing, of pretending, of being a cultural Christian, then we are like the blind, being led by the blind into a pit. Jesus, though, comes to open blind eyes. He's the light of the world. And he says, don't give your hearts to what is empty. Give your hearts to me and my fullness. Don't let good things, and there are plenty of very good things in life that you should all have. They'll be wonderful. But don't let good things push out the best thing. Verse 10. I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Knowing the supreme value, knowing Jesus, as Paul describes it here, requires two things. It requires death, and it requires resurrection. The death is our part to play. The resurrection is his. And the death is death to self. It's the death, as Hannah put it on the weekend away, the death to glory emptiness. It doesn't mean that you have to be at the bottom of the pit. It can do, and often those who have hit rock bottom know it. 
And they often find it very compelling to go, oh, wait a second, there is a way out of this that I don't actually have to run my life, and it's gone very bad me trying to do that. I can actually put my, ha my life in the hands of Jesus, and he can raise me up. It's often people who have hit rock bottom who find it easiest. But you don't have to have hit rock bottom to be glory empty, to know that God's glory has seeped out of you somewhat, that it's drained from you, that you are not everything that he has made you to be. And if your faith feels a bit stagnant, if you feel stuck, or if you actually feel nothing at all, these, I would say, are clear signs of some of God's glory seeping away. But what Jesus is inviting all of us into with him on a daily basis is to put that stagnation Put that dullness, pull that, put that half-heartedness to death on the cross with him. And unfortunately, some Christians have grown up feeling like God is really just, Jesus is really just a killjoy. He's a killer of joy. That to be a Christian is to have your life, your spark, your wonder, and your fun. Give it to Jesus. He kills it, and now you're dead. Jesus wants your life so he can kill it. It couldn't be further from the truth. The only thing, the only thing Jesus ever wants to kill off is death itself. All the death that is robbing you of life. That's what he's after. He wants to take your empty values, stick them on the cross, destroy them forever so that he can replace them with his life. And that comes by resurrection. And you cannot resurrect yourself. You can no more resurrect yourself than you can pull yourself up out of your pew by your own hair. Try it. Try it. Just pull yourself up. Impossible, but God can do it in an instant. Because that's his power, the power of his resurrection. All we have to do is let him. Do you want to be resurrected? Often people don't. They don't want to give him control. They don't want to give up their values. They do actually, when it comes down to it, really actually want to be famous, thank you. Not giving you that. Or money or success or whatever else it is. So you don't have to. He's just inviting you to. So can I ask you, do you know Jesus? or have cultural or religious values crowded him out? Or do you know Jesus only to the degree to which he can actually give you what you want? A relationship, or a career, or money? And if he doesn't give you that, then he might as well as be as distant as never knowing anything about him ever before. Or is it rather than Jesus, you just know Christianity. You just know how to do church. You just know how to say the right things and do the right things and be a good Christian. Jesus stands at the door of our hearts all the time, knocking, saying, uh, can I just come in and start a revolution for you?
Can I just replace all of that? Can I just resurrect you? Would you like to lose all of that so that I can bring you stuff of eternal value so that you can say with Paul, yes, this is wonderful. Everything else is a loss because I've got this. I've given up all this dust and I have diamonds. So how do we do it? Just to end. Paul is wonderfully practical. Right at the beginning of this chapter, he says this. Here's a safeguard for you, verse 1. You want to be protected against empty values? Well, says Paul, here is that protection. And he says, it's something I've been telling you about over and over again, and I don't mind doing it again. I'll do it again. I'll do it again. And what this safeguard is, is this. Rejoice in the Lord. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again and again and again. It's a safeguard for you. Rejoice in the Lord. He actually uses the word joy or rejoice 16 times in this letter because he's trying to get it into their thick heads that this is something that they need to learn. You repeat things so that it becomes second nature to you. Unfortunately, often people have a misunderstanding of what Christian disciplines are. They think Christian disciplines are earthly disciplines with a bit of Christian flavor, i.e. I need to get up at five o'clock, read my Bible, and if I'm a mature Christian, I will actually enjoy doing that. And they do it, and they do it, and nothing changes. Christian discipline is not about doing things religiously, about rigid um, following rules, doing it over and over again. Christian discipline is about things becoming second nature to us. Worship is something we are called to be. You need to grow into becoming a worshipper. You need to learn how to worship. In the same way, you need to learn how to be a prayer. You need to learn how to read the Bible and have the Bible fill you. You need to learn how to be someone who carries the Spirit with you wherever you go. That's what discipline means. Doing it until we've got it. Not just following, I do the rules. It's not boot camp. It's not the military. Um, Hannah prayed very well because she's, she's learned how to pray when she was praying earlier. Do you want to pray like that? Learn how to pray. Learn how to worship. Um, please don't see this as me pointing a finger at you, okay? This is not... Pastor Ed having a go at the congregation. Please don't see this as that. Um, Rather, this is an invitation to learn how to worship. I know the roads were um, not working today. But we actually, a lot of us, really need that 20 minutes of worship on a Sunday. Because we're not going to make it very far if we don't get that. So can I ask you to come and be part of worship? and to learn how to worship. I know that some people are rejecting stupid um, uh, smoke machines and lights and all that. I get that. Reject it, run away from it, empty religiosity, total waste of time. And other people are rejecting sort of dead, there's nothing going on here, no one believes anything, we're just saying the same old words over and over again, that's been their church experience. Again, very good to reject all of that. However, do learn how to worship the living God that is not hyped up, that is not manipulated, but it is actually where he is to be found. Learn to rejoice. Learn to rejoice and rejoice and rejoice. Have it be part of who you are. It's what it is to be a Christian. 
And it can be quite a good barometer. Do you like worshipping? Do you like Jesus? I mean, it's just a question. Because that's what he's calling us to do. Put me as the highest value and worship me and see me resurrect you. See me bring life to you. Amen, amen. I went on. I'm sorry. Ben, Tavia, let us worship the Lord. Look at that. Should we stand? So your worship is no one else's worship. It's very important that people learn how they best worship the Lord, right? However, to be a Christian is to be part of a community. You can't, there's no such thing as um, isolated Christians. You are part of this community. We heard some wonderful testimonies of how powerful the sense of belonging to a family is. So when we gather together, we are actually worshiping together, together, right? But it's your worship. Some people like to dance. Some people like to put their hands in the air. Some people like to close their eyes and say nothing. Some people just like to quietly respond to God. What we're doing, though, is we're all doing it together. Now, no one is going to force you into any way of worshipping, but what I'm just encouraging you, what I'm inviting you into, is to allow yourself, in whatever ways it needs to be, to come into God's presence and to say, you're the one I value. You're the one who makes sense of my life, and I give you my worship, I give you my praise. Okay? Good. Let us worship him for a bit.